you have your Bibles, please turn to Second Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles chapter 26. We're going to consider uh, the entire chapter this morning, Lord willing, verses 1 through 23. So Second Chronicles uh, 26, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of God. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Eleth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbaal and against the Manites. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt, because he had become very powerful. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle of the wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns, because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plain. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers as mustered by Jael the secretary and Messiah the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that the soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. 
When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave, because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign, from beginning to end, are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them in the cemetery that belonged to the kings, for people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Father, we would ask now that this morning you would be faithful to us, and in being faithful to us, we would ask that you would make us faithful to you. Uh, I pray that we will be able to follow you in the ways that you lay out for us. I pray that you will enable us, by your grace and power, uh, to be disciples who are eager to do things your way in conforming to the patterns for our lives that you have laid down in every area and sphere and aspect and relationship. I pray that you will uh, make us people who are truly godly, people who are truly like your Son, Jesus Christ, in holiness and righteousness. I pray you will forgive us uh, for the many, many ways that we fail to conform to your standards and to your glory and to the one that we say we love and want to follow. But not only, Lord, do we pray that you will forgive us, we pray that you will uh, restore us and that you will make us more like Jesus today than we've ever been before. That you will give us that hope for growth. That you will uh, give us that empowerment which is necessary spiritually to actually advance in our uh, walk with you. To be more likely like you and to know you better. Uh, Father, we would pray for those who are gathered here uh, today with heavy hearts. We pray that you will uh, heal them. We pray that you will touch them and comfort them, strengthen them, and encourage them. We pray that those who are gathered uh, here this morning uh, with joyful hearts, uh, we pray that you will uh, work in them to intensify that joy, uh, that you will draw them into uh, higher levels of worship and rejoicing in you through your Son, Jesus. And Father, as we uh, mark the 90th anniversary of this church, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness through all the years, and we pray that uh, this church will be a place where people love one another and where we love you supremely. Uh, we, we pray that this will be a place where your word is opened uh, accurately and applied with power through your wisdom. Uh, we pray, Lord, through it. We, we can only imagine over the, the 90 years all of the different moving parts that have come in and out of this place. And we can only imagine that if there are another 90 years for this church, that uh, there will be many, many more uh, people who will come in and go out uh, playing their role for the time that they are here. Lord, watch over everyone. Make this a true body and family uh, so that Christ is honored. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. One of the things that you likely don't know about me, is that I have incredible, 
math skills. And so earlier today, or not today, earlier this week, I don't have very good temporal reference skills, but I do have math skills, especially with my calculator. And so earlier this week, I figured out what 90 times 12 is to figure out how many months this church has been in existence. Who knows what 90 times 12 is off the top of their head? Pardon? 1080. Possibly, yes. I think that's what my calculator said. 1080. And then I figured out how many months I've been here. And did you know that I have been pastoring this church for 6.944% of its history? I figured that out. I just thought that was neat. And then I did some other math and I figured this out. Sam, Pastor Sam, was 11 years old when the church was founded. And I thought that was pretty fantastic too. So, so two neat little mathematical facts for you, both of which required my calculator. But those, that's what it was. 90, 90 years. You know, there's actually some lessons, believe it or not, uh, in this text for a church that's celebrating an anniversary. And that's not why I chose it, though. Uh, there are lessons for us individually and personally in this text. Not why I chose it. This text actually sets up a biblical theological trajectory, which is massively important. And so I'm hoping we'll be able to see that. If I do my job with even remote competence, which is not always likely, uh, you'll be able to see how this text drives past just who we are as individuals. Uh, to what we need God to do for us in his gracious provision. So you'll notice as I was reading, you know, the first, first couple of verses, the first five verses, uh, you have a young man named Uzziah who becomes king. 16 years old when he is made king. And one of the things that's important in the text is that he actually does a good job when he's young. Uh, one of the things that we need to recognize the book of James makes this very clear, is that not everyone who grows older grows in wisdom. Now, if you're doing a good job living, on balance, wisdom should come with age and maturity. It ought to, but it doesn't always. In fact, one of the tragedies of life is seeing an old fool. But that's not a contradiction. There can be people who grow and all they do is grow more and more foolish as the years grow on, go on. There are people who can get more and more bitter as the years go on. People who can get less and less godly as the years go on. People who can grow more and more useless as the years go on. So there's a thorn in everyone's side. That is possible. It ought not to be. There is a general correlation between growing older and growing in wisdom. But we must never just judge wisdom on the basis of age. So Uzziah here is a young person. He's 16 years old. And, and, and thankfully, this was before the, socio, this, this, the sociological development of the category of teenagers. Uh, you do realize in the history of the world, uh, they haven't had this category of teenagers. Uh, people used to be expected as they got older to be more helpful and polite and civil. 
So that we have created, quite literally, in a post-World War II, we created a whole sociological demographic of people that we expect to be rebellious and useless. And now, because we thought that was a good idea, we've extended it so that now not only can you be sort of that way when you're 18, you can be that way till you're like 30. No offense to anyone who's under 30. Uh, but, you know, we sort of just adopted this sort of idea that people they can just not enter into life. We have no expectations for young people anymore, and so they have no expectations for themselves, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We ought not to be that way. You could be 16 years old and king of Israel. Where are, where are 16-year-old kings of whatever aspect or sphere where they're in today? We ought to expect that. We, we ought to expect great things of our children and teenagers. We should. Why not? There, there's no reason at all uh, to expect that teenagers will be rebellious and lazy or whatever it is. Wisdom and godliness can defy age boundaries. Wisdom and godliness can defy our sociological demographics. And we need to insist on that in the church. In the church, we must understand that anyone, no matter how old or young they are, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, by definition, has the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts to be used in the church. That they are part of the body of Christ. Not just in a postponed sense of... One day, like, treat the kids well, because one day they're the future. That is true. But that doesn't mean that they're not also the present. They are just as much a part of things now as they will be in the future. And we need to insist on that. And we need to make a place for that uh, in terms of godliness and giftedness. But notice also, this is also very important, though. Verse 4, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as Father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. This is critical. He is not a 16-year-old who's functioning autonomously. He's a young person who has a godly advisor, someone who's giving him godly counsel. And this is what we need absolutely in the church. We need wise Uzziahs, but we also need wise Zacharias. We need people who will come alongside of these younger people and pour into them. And this begins at the earliest ages. And this is one of the things that I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled about here in the church, and there's still work to be done because there's always work to be done in everything. But one of the amazing things that's happening in this church is we are beginning to see over the last couple of years uh, a development in terms of children's ministry so that it's not just babysitting, it's actually ministry, which it needs to be, which it ought to be, which there's no point in having it if it's not. It needs to be ministry. And so people are being taken care of in a loving environment, but they're being taught, they're being instructed, there's modeling being done. There's all kinds of wonderful things that are happening uh, wherever the kids are, whether it's the nursery, you know, the toddlers, the children's church, during the Sunday services, and it's a beautiful thing. We also still have Sunday school. Starting again in September, we take a break for the summer. And one of the things that's beautiful about that is, is Zachariah's pouring into Uzziahs and those who are even younger. And that's what you have. Uh, you have people who are taking the posture of Zacharias saying, I am going to teach and pour into the next generation uh, 
because they're valuable today. And they're not just valuable instrumentally. They're not just valuable for what they might do someday. They're valuable now because they're created in the image of God. What more value can anyone have than that? And so we're going to love them and care for them and teach them and instruct them. Now, this fall, uh, as always, you know, we're going to have our Sunday school classes. And there is always an opportunity for coming alongside of these children and teaching them. Uh, there are some of our classes where we could use a teacher or a teacher's assistant. Uh, we actually this year have a need for uh, someone, one or two people, who would be willing to sort of be a, almost like a permanent substitute teacher. Some of our teachers can't be there every week from September to June, and you wouldn't expect them to. Uh, but we have blocks where we're going to need someone who's willing to come in just for two or three weeks who's willing to be a, sort of a permanent substitute teacher. And it's not just because it's a job. Like, it's not a job at all, believe me, uh, in terms of payment. But it's a ministry, right? It's a way of actually showing the love of Christ to valuable people. It's a way of sharing the wisdom of God's Word with people. They're young, but they're no less valuable than anyone of any age in all of the world. And so if you have any interest in that, or if you have any gifting in that, or if you're willing to help out, please come and talk to me. Uh, because we do need some people who are willing to function like Zacharias, uh, pouring into these young Uzziahs. As long as he sought the Lord, the text says, God gave him success. This is the key. You need to seek the Lord. Young people, children, teenagers need to be raised to be encouraged to seek the Lord. So they need older people who will come along and mentor them with that, teaching them, instructing them, but not only verbally. We need to be a church that where the, where the older adults model to younger adults, to teenagers and to children, we need to be a place where there are lots of godly models who will live out what we say verbally. One of the greatest problems in our churches is a lot of talk a lot of advice, a lot of instruction, a lot of counsel that isn't, that isn't mirrored by practical living out. And so that's what we need. We need people who will teach and people who will model. And if we do that, we'll be amazed at what God does. Because when we actually seek the Lord, the Lord can do a whole lot more than we can do. Uh, the Lord can actually transform things. Uh, the, the, Lord could, the Lord could do a work here which would make the first 90 years of the church's existence look like nothing. Because he's unlimited. Because he's infinite. Because it, it, it's actually our vision of what God is going to do that so often hinders him from doing what he would do and can do. Because it doesn't fit in our box. Because we're not comfortable with that. Because it's been like that for 90 years. And so we have all of these ways of, of sort of controlling and tempering expectations rather than just letting God be God. Move in and do what he wants to do. Well, what kind of areas did Uzziah have success in? There's some representative blessings. Verses 6 to 8, uh, God helped him against his enemies. So you have these, these enemies who are continually at war uh, with Israel. And so Uzziah is seeking God. And so God helps him against his enemies. As a result, Uzziah's fame spreads 
as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. And this is actually very interesting. Uh, when God brings Israel out of Egypt, one of the things that he, he makes sure everyone knows is that he's doing it for the glory of his own name. That he is doing this so that all the nations will know him. That all nations will know how powerful he is. So, when God makes Moses a great leader, it's not for Moses' sake. It's for God's sake so that everyone will know him. And of course, when God wants everyone to know him, it's for his sake and for their sake because there's nothing better than knowing God. In fact, nothing else matters. Nothing else counts. If you don't know God, you don't have anything. And so even when God is blessing Israel and blessing individuals, it is never just for their own comfort. Never. It may be, their, their comfort may be an entailment of it or a consequence of it, but whether it's judgment or blessing, whether it's good times or hard, to, or, or hard times, whatever it is, God is working so that all people will know him. Uzziah's fame spreads as the king of Israel... So that everyone's heard about what's going on in Israel with Uzziah, but the point isn't so that Uzziah can be in the spotlight. It's so that as he is seeking the Lord, he will be, people will hear about him and sort of in some ways ask, well, what's going on there? What's this guy's secret? This little tiny, irrelevant little nation. You know, how are they doing so well? Well, they've got this king who seeks God. Uh, they've got the only God. Remember Egypt all those years ago, long centuries past. Remember how Israel was brought out. Have you heard about their God? There's no one like him. That's why Uzziah is powerful. That's why he has his reputation. Because he's serving and seeking God. He became very powerful. He had success at home. So he had success against his enemies. And then verses 9 through 10, he had success at home. He, he builds up the city. Fortifies the city. Uh, he takes care of, of the, the socioeconomics. He, he builds towers in the wilderness, watchtowers, and digs cisterns. He's taking care of food and water, all these necessities of, of life. He has lots of livestock. He, he has crops, fields, vineyards, fertile lands, for he loves the soil. He loves creation. In fact, one of the things that, that we sh- is so shocking, our, our whole society is, is, is it so so different from every society in history, um, even from so many societies around the world today. But it's, it's not a surprise. I mean, Solomon was the same. You, you read the description of Solomon, and, and Solomon, one of the things that he did was he, he just loved creation. He spoke about animals and, and trees and vines, fish, ants. So many of the Proverbs are drawn from this sort of agrarian life. And so that, shockingly to us, the kings of Israel were far more like farmers than almost anyone in our society today, except those who are farmers, which is a dwindling uh, percentage of the population, probably not uh, for the good. But here you have someone who is invested in the world. He, 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 he's in those natural life and death cycles of, uh, of fertility with crops and, and with soil and with vineyards and with livestock. He's taking care of, of Israel in an agrarian society. He has success militarily, verses 11 through 15. He has this standing army. 
Uh, they're organized. They're well equipped. He has them with all the sorts of uh, accoutrements and weapons and paraphernalia that they need. He's technologically advanced. He, he's inventive. So he has these these machines, sort of these programmatic type catapults or you know, or big bows that can shoot you know, big arrows or whatever it is. And so uh, this, is, this is massive technological advancement you know, in, in their day. Someone's going to attack the city and he's got nice fortified walls and he's got this sort of programmatic or paradigmatic catapult that he's invented that can hurl large stones from the wall. Pretty fun stuff to be the king. You, know, you, you, you sit around and you, you plant some crops and then you build a catapult. That's what Uzziah is doing. Inclusio, at the end of verse 15, his fame spread far and wide. That's an inclusio with verse 8. Verse 8, his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt and he became very powerful. Verse 15 would be C. His fame spread far and wide he before he was greatly helped until he became powerful. How did he grow powerful? Well, he was greatly helped. That's a lesson, patient, of wide application. Are you powerful in some area of life? Are you gifted in some area of life? Have you been successful in some area of life? Are you a somebody you know, in some area of life? Well, guess how you got there? You are greatly helped. There is no such thing as, as a self-made person. Uh, there's no such thing as someone who just pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps. Yes, there are people who work hard. But why do they have the health required to work hard? There are people who work hard, but, but where do they get that personality that's driven? See, see no one invents themselves. You, you don't control your genetics. You, you have shockingly limited control of the environment that you put yourself in, the environment that you find yourself in, the people that you surround yourself with. You, you have some control over some of that, but not a ton of control over most of it. And, and so the way that you are, sort of biologically, and the experiences that you have environmentally and socially are obviously uh, of tremendous significance when it comes to being who you are. So whatever you are, you are the product of many things outside of yourself. Not least of which is the special providential work of God in your life. And so if you are going to be successful, if you're going to be powerful in any way, if you are gifted in any way, it is blasphemous to take glory or credit to yourself. Uzziah's fame is not for himself. Uzziah's fame is so that God will be glorified. Uzziah, how did you get to be this way? God has helped me. That's the answer. Uzziah, what, what did it take to sort of get Israel to this place? The seeking the Lord. That's the answer. All glory has to be deflected to God. Psalm 115, verse 1. It's almost a violence in this. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name be the glory. Not unto us. Not unto us. Certainly not unto me. He's like, how are you so powerful? God has been my help. But, rather than that, verse 16 after Uzziah became powerful, his pride 
led to his downfall. Once again, uh, pride goes before the fall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Now, unfaithful uh, is the dominant word for the chronicler, the one who, the, whoever it is who wrote First and Second Chronicles. Uh, unfaithful is the dominant word the chronicler uses to describe rebellion against God. So, if you read about Saul, if you read about Israel, and, and next week actually, I'm going to be I'm going to be explaining this a little bit more. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, okay, Second Chronicles 36, the fall and restoration of Judah. And so, if you want to understand uh, the history of Israel, you have to understand what I'm talking about next week. If you want to understand your historical books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you have to understand what I'm talking about next week. If you don't understand what I'm talking about next week, you can't understand anything in the New Testament because the New Testament is based on what's going on here. Now, that means... I know. Next week's a long weekend. I know. If you are not here next weekend to hear that sermon, well, no, no, we are not recording next week's sermon. We are not. First of all, because we record all the messages and no one ever listens to them except me. And I know because I listen to it five times a week Then I check the stats and it's always five listens. So... Just trying to, trying to bump that needle up a little bit. I'm hoping one day there will be six. There never has been just yet. Um, so next week, we're going to be talking about this. It actually is essential. Uh, why, why does God bring the covenant curses upon Israel and Judah? What was it? But more, why does he restore them? What, what lesson is there there? This great, unexpected work of God's grace. It, it, it's, it's, it's shocking, given Old Testament context. So shocking. There is nothing you can be doing next weekend that's better than being here, just so you know. You're guilty in advance if you go. We'll talk about unfaithfulness next week. Well, what did he do that was just so unfaithful? Yeah, we we will. There'll be lots of layers to it. In fact, I might even have names about people who are unfaithful uh, on the basis of their attendance next week. It'll be easy to see. So what did he do? I mean, what did he do that's so bad, right? Well, he takes this, this incense and he goes into the temple to, to worship God. So, well, wait a minute. How can, how can you fault him for that, really? He's trying to worship God. Doesn't God just accept people any way they are, any way they want to come to him? Isn't God just the father of us all? Aren't we all just his children? Does, isn't he loving and embracing? Doesn't he want us just to, just to come to him? Here's a, here's a king who has lots to do. Who's coming into the temple to worship God. What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, one of the macro lessons of the Old Testament is that God is a God of unapproachable holiness. Compassionate, merciful, gracious, yes, 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 yes. But he can only be approached the way that he says. And there's a massive lesson there, which you won't understand fully until you come to Jesus. I'm almost ready to say, and I'll explain it next week. Let's just stop now. But I'll, I'll just finish this one up for your sake who are here today. Uh, God is saying, listen, there's only one way to come to me. 
It seems really narrow. It's against the it's against the egalitarian ethos of the world, where everyone just wants to be able to sort of earn their right to God on their own. That that I'll figure out who I think God is. That I'll figure out how I think that God can be approached, and everything will be fine. But no, it doesn't start that way. It doesn't start with you figuring out who I am and you figuring out how to come to me. It starts with me making you. And then it starts with me revealing myself to you. It's all backwards. It's entirely backwards to think that we are the ones with the responsibility of sorting out who God is and getting our way to him. We don't do that. He comes to us. That's the glory of the gospel. He comes to us. People like us. God. And he says, I want you to come to me. That's my desire. But, but you have to understand, you'll come to me the way I decree. You'll come to me. I'll provide the only way you need. But you have to use that way. Okay? And it's going to seem narrow to you. It's going to seem like the gate is really narrow and the path is really narrow. It's going to seem like that to you. But believe me, the path is more than wide enough. It's all you need. It's one way, but it gets you all the way there. There's lots of broad paths that don't get you there. You need a narrow one that gets you all the way. So you come to me the way I say. This was the lesson that Nadab and Abihu learned. Uh, Right after the consecration of the priest in Numbers, you will recall, Nadab and Abihu uh, offer incense to the Lord in an unauthorized way, and they're consumed by sort of the, the lightning strike of God, and they die. And the lesson was, priests, you need to show my people the difference between right and wrong. You need to show the difference between the sacred and the profane, the, the, the holy and the common. You need to show the people, you come to me only in the way that I have stipulated because I am a holy God. I want you to come in, but there's only a one way to do that. Uzziah here arrogates to himself the privileges that do not belong to him. After all, I'm the king. After all, I'm powerful. Look at all, look at all of my, my vineyards. Look at, look at my properties. Look at my socioeconomic economic development of the nation. Look at my military. Look at my fame. There's a sense which you almost get the idea that, that maybe he, he, he's, he's fallen into such an arrogance that he thinks that, that perhaps God will be awfully impressed to have someone as, as important as Uzziah show up to worship him today. And he comes in and the priests say, no, Uzziah, king, maintain your sphere. You are king of Israel, but only the priests, the descendants of Levi, have been given the the, the holy obligation and mighty privilege from God to offer incense. Uzziah breaks out into a rage before he breaks it into leprosy. He is furious. How dare you tell me what I can and cannot do? Now, this is someone whose pride and whose power has gotten obviously well out of hand. He, he, he's, this, is, this is actually one of the, the indexes. This is one of the ways you can tell someone is a fool. A fool is someone who no longer knows how to take advice. 
A fool is someone who no longer knows how to take correction. These priests are speaking in their sphere of authority. And they're not speaking on their own. They're speaking through the power of God. They're speaking through what God himself has already said. Uzziah, you cannot do this. There's a clear division between king and priest. And God strikes him with a curse. Leprosy in the Old Covenant was understood to be a curse from God. This is why it's significant in the New Testament that Jesus not only heals all kinds of diseases, but then usually even in the list of things that Jesus is doing, he drives out demons, you know, he raises the dead, heals diseases, and heals leprosy. Leprosy is usually specially mentioned. And, and you can say, well, it's just another disease. No, it wasn't. Leprosy was symbolic of the curse of God, unlike anything else. So when Uzziah, the great, powerful king, breaks out with leprosy, people understand he is cursed by God. He ends up fleeing the temple, being ushered out, living in a separate house. His son has to take over ruling the kingdom because he's perpetually unclean for the rest of his life. And even in his death, there are problems in terms of the logistics of his burial. All because he tries to usurp the role that was only for the priests. Now, what do we do with that? I mean, how does this actually work out in our lives? I mean, it's not likely that the lesson is, well, listen, when you're king of Israel and you invent catapults, don't offer incense in the temple, right? That's a hard lesson of application for most of us. So, so what does this actually mean? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's going on here for us? Well, there are those lessons on which we sort of teased out a little bit already. Seek God. Yes, yes. Be faithful. Don't be unfaithful. Temptation can come with success and power. But this is actually one of those balancing texts, I think. You know, it was very faddish for like a day, uh, a number of years ago, to, to pray the prayer of Jabez. I'm not sure if any of you did that. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, enough time has gone by that I can be forgiven for saying this now, because I don't know if anyone is praying the J- prayer of Jabez today. Um, it, was a, it was a bit of a flash in the, in the pan, probably rightly, because that whole concept was so ripped verses out of biblical context. It, it was staggering. But this is one of the counterbalancing texts to this. Oh, Lord, bless me and increase my territory. Really? Really? You're spiritually mature enough for that? You know you can grow in power and influence and still be a blessing to people? You know that? Lord, double my sphere of influence. Really? Is that a good thing? Is that a healthy thing? More more often... I think it would have been right for me to pray, Lord, decrease my influence. Lord, Lord, help me to affect people less. Make me a smaller fish in a smaller pond. Because it's not a game to have influence. It's, it's not a game to have the Lord increase your territory. The problem is, 
lot of people praying the prayer of Jabez didn't read the Bible properly in the first place in terms of context. But also may have just slightly misunderstood the goodness that would accrue to the world if God increased all of their abilities and influence. In the end, was it good for Uzziah to have his fame spread all around the world? No. In the end, it destroyed him. We need to pray that God will give us no more nor, nor less influence than we ought to have. That, that God will not give us anything that's too big for our moral character. And that God will also allow us in humility to recognize what's right for our moral character. Because often, we're the last one to know how good we actually are. Pride does go before the fall and can destroy people's lives. Another lesson, helpful. The beginning and the middle of your race isn't the finish line. Uzziah started out very well. In fact, Uzziah was a better king when he was 16 than he was after he had grown very powerful. Doubtless there's a lesson there that, that's well worth pondering. Make sure that your, uh, your laces are still tied up as you run around the track on the lap that God has given you before you pass the baton to someone else. How you start isn't how you finish. Now, that can be really good news because there are an enormous number of us who have not started well. And so maybe we can finish better than we've begun. That's good. But just because you've had a good 100 meters doesn't mean you're going to finish the next 300 as you go around the track with, with equal speed. As long as there's still steps to be taken, there's the risk of tripping. And, and so we don't run in fear, but hopefully we do run with a little bit of wisdom. A little bit. Are there risks in, in serving God and loving people? Yes. Inescapably. You, you, you cannot do a single thing of any blessed good in this world without running risk. It's not possible. The world's too messy. So you run. But you run with care. And, and you don't think, well, things are going along well now, so there's no, there's no danger anywhere. All, all valuable lessons, doubtless. But... More importantly, what this text begs for, absolutely cries out for, is someone, something, somehow, a reality which is going to fix this cursed pestilence that runs all through the Old Testament era, is that the kings are useless and so are the priests. So if it's not the kings who are sinning, it's the priests who are sinning. Just read, I mean, if, you've, if you've read this far, as we've been going through the Bible in the year, if you've read First and Second Kings, if you've read First and Second Chronicles, when is anyone any good? This is this whole mess. And, and the priests are the ones, each of the prophets, the priests are the ones who are, who are leading the people into idolatry. 
And the kings love it. So what's going to fix this? I mean, Uzziah is actually, if you're reading the text carefully, Uzziah is the third king in a row who starts out well and then drops the ball at the end. The third king in a row who starts out doing not too badly and just flames out. And the priests, you have some courageous priests here, but you keep reading the text, the, the priests are going to be worse than anyone. You say, well, how are we ever going to worship a holy God? Our kings are useless and wicked. Our, our priests are leading people into, into pagan idolatry in the temple, so that God has to destroy everyone, cart them all off to Babylon. Talk about that next week. And so this, this is just this is century after century after century. There's just no hope. There's just, there's just no hope. We need a perfect king. But, but we need a perfect priest. We can't find anyone who's even close to that. How are you going to find two people? Like, the kings can't be the priests. The priests can't be the kings. This is, this is awful. Priests come from Levi. Kings come from Judah. Everyone from Judah stinks. Even worse from Levi. But we need a perfect king. We need a perfect priest. This is absolutely unsolvable until you have something which no one could ever have foreseen coming. In the wisdom of God, just thinking a little bit side out of the box, God says, you know, I'm going to send my son and he's going to be the high priest. And he's going to be the king. But the problem with that is kings come from Judah and kings can't be priests. And so God structures all of history so that there is one significant encounter between Abraham and this very shadowy figure named Melchizedek in Genesis 14 which, as important as it is, will never be referenced anywhere again until Psalm 110. And then never mentioned again until the author of Hebrews is trying to sort out how can Jesus be king and priest. And he says, you know, if we just read our Bibles in chronological sequence, we'd notice that there was a king-priest before Levi. Before Aaron. That was Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of God Most High. That's how he's described. So you could have a king, priest of God, who's not from Judah or Levi. And Psalm 110, for whatever reason, the most shocking thing after, after Melchizedek's never talked about anywhere, you have this, this crazy reference in Psalm 110 that says, You will be a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek. Well, no one's talking. What are we talking about? There's just one link. God, God gave one link through David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You shall be a priest forever. It is the order of Melchizedek. What on earth? Historical reference, Genesis 14, mentioned one time, Psalm 110. 
And you could never sort it out until Jesus. Because Jesus was the king and the high priest, but not because he was descended from Levi, but because he transcended the entire system. So that he and he alone was in a position to be the king and the priest of God Most High. He's the king who offers incense in the temple. He's the king who goes into the holy of holy places and offers the the sacrifice for the Day of Atonement. He is the king who's the high priest who offers the sacrifice, which is himself, in the holy of holies. And so more than all the little lessons that we can learn from the text, and there are some there, this chapter begs you to go read the book of Hebrews. It begs you, go and look at my fulfillment. Look, a king who goes in the temple is cursed by God. Every time. Except once. And in that one time when the king went into the temple to offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, his own substitute blood, God was pleased. And yes, God poured his wrath and curse upon him. But then he raised him to life, not cursed to die and be buried leprous, but raised and glorified forever and ever. This text drives us to Jesus. It begs for Jesus. The entire Old Testament, read rightly, begs us to move beyond it to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, may God help us. And if this If this church is around 90 years from now, with Pastor Sam still as Pastor Emeritus, doubtless, may this be a place where people are driven to Jesus. He's our king. He's our priest. He's the one that we need. He's also the one that we worship. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, this time. Lead us in our closing song, and we will worship the Lord together.